Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast for medical students and all learners. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, and Joy Sow. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome to another episode of the Run the List Endocrine Series. Today, we're excited to share the first of three episodes on diabetes. Our first episode is on outpatient diabetes management with Dr. Anna Goldman, who's an endocrinologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Associate Program Director of the Endocrinology Fellowship. She's very involved in medical education and teaches the first-year endocrinology course at Harvard Medical School. Our student case presenter is Dr. Emily Gutowski, who's a rising intern who will be starting up at Mount Sinai Hospital. My name is Joyce, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School, and I'm excited to be your host. Are you guys ready to run the list? Let's do it. All right, Emily, can you start us off with a case? Sure. So the patient is a 58-year-old man with a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia who's coming in for a physical after several years of not seeing a doctor. He tells you he's become a bit less active since his job went virtual a few months ago, and his older brother was recently diagnosed with diabetes, so he wanted to get checked out as well, especially since his father suffered for many years from complications of diabetes. His vital signs are notable for a blood pressure of 152 over 94, and his BMI is 33. His physical exam is normal. Great. Thank you, Emily. So let's discuss diabetes. Dr. Goldman, when you're teaching patients or students about diabetes, what's your general framework? For this patient, what might be the things that you're thinking about? Sure. So there are actually a lot of different types of diabetes, but in general, I'm thinking is, could this be somebody who has type 1 or type 2 diabetes? We know that this patient has, he probably has high blood pressure. He at least has one elevated blood pressure reading. He has class 1 obesity, and he has a positive family history of type 2 diabetes. So he seems to be at increased risk for type 2 diabetes. And, you know, with type 2 diabetes, generally, these are patients who have had insulin resistance and prediabetes for, you know, a number of years. It takes, it takes many, many years for, for type 2 diabetes to, to develop. And generally, people are asymptomatic for a long time. And then as the, as the disease progresses and their blood sugars start to rise, this kind of overwhelms the kidney's ability to absorb glucose. And so the patients start to spill glucose into the urine, which causes an osmotic diuresis and classic symptoms of polyuria and polydipsia. So those are symptoms that I I ask every patient about when they're coming in to see me to see if they, you know, do they have prediabetes or, or, or type 2 diabetes. I'm looking to see what is their, you know, what is their family history. Race and ethnicity can also be important contributing aspects of their history. And on physical exam, things that I, I pay attention to are, you know, do they have signs of insulin resistance? The most classic being acanthosis nigricans, which is a velvety appearance to folds of the skin, typically will look um, on the back of the neck or under the armpit. And could this patient have isolated prediabetes or diabetes, or could this be part of a larger metabolic syndrome, which is a constellation of different conditions, including abdominal obesity, hypertriglyceridemia, having a low HDL, high blood pressure, and high fasting glucose? If you have more than one of these conditions, or, or three out of five, this is thought to suggest that patients have an increased um, risk of future cardiovascular disease. And so I am trying to get a sense of what is this patient's um, kind of overall risk. When, when I'm meeting him. Okay. So in summary, you look for some common symptoms and signs associated with diabetes on your first initial outpatient visit with these patients. 
So I would love to hear more about this patient. Emily, could you continue the case and tell us a bit more? Sure. So you order some labs and schedule a follow-up visit for the next week. A fasting plasma glucose level returns at 116, and the hemoglobin A1c is 6.1. His creatinine is 0.9. Great. So Dr. Goldman, with these labs, how do you think about them? What would you tell this patient? Sure. So there are a few different ways that we can make the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. If one's fasting glucose is above 126 milligrams per deciliter, a hemoglobin A1c at or above 6.5%, or any random glucose above 200, or one can do a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test and look for hyperglycemia two hours later. So this patient, it looks like he has impaired fasting glucose and a hemoglobin A1c, which would put him into the pre-diabetes range. So I'm not, I'm not surprised by this data. We knew that this patient, given his family history and his obesity, that he was at risk for, for prediabetes or diabetes. So, you know, he's at, he's at risk for, for progressing to overt type 2 diabetes unless he makes some serious lifestyle changes with, you know, changes in his diet and exercise routine. And his creatinine is normal right now. But again, if he develops overt type 2 diabetes, one of my concerns would be his, his likelihood of developing diabetic nephropathy. I see. So based on these labs, we've confirmed that this patient is a pre-diabetic patient who's at risk for progressing into diabetes if no changes are made. Emily, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what happens next? Sure. So the patient assures you that he'll try his best to implement some lifestyle changes. He really doesn't want to have to take medications like his brother. You set him up with a nutritionist who helps him make some actionable changes that he feels comfortable with. Unfortunately, he misses his subsequent two follow-up appointments, and the next time he comes in is almost a year later. His pre-visit labs are notable for a fasting plasma glucose of 143 and an A1C of 7.6. His creatinine is 1.3 from that baseline of 0.9 last year. He tells you he initially lost 15 pounds with diet and exercise, but he gained it back due to the stress he's been under since losing his job. He feels out of control, and he's worried about his health. When you ask about his vision, he mentions it may be a bit blurrier recently, He's hoping to get some new glasses. Okay. So I think this case represents the reality for a lot of our patients. Sometimes it's not realistic to expect that they'll actually be able to follow up quite as frequently as we'd like from the practitioner perspective. And sometimes what we think is maybe an actionable lifestyle change isn't actually that practical, especially when major life events happen, such as losing a job. So Dr. Goldman, so for this patient, how has his course of illness changed? Well, unfortunately, it sounds like he does have overt type 2 diabetes, and he should definitely be commended for the initial changes he made in his lifestyle such that he was able to lose a, you know, an impressive amount of weight. What I tell patients is that they don't need to lose a tremendous amount of weight to reverse the, the insulin resistance and the, the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. Studies have shown that if patients lose, you know, just 5 to 10% of their body weight, I tell patients if they can lose, you know, a pound or two a week over the next three to six months, that can be all it takes to reverse his hyperglycemia and restore euglycemia. But, you know, unfortunately, where we're at right now, I, I'm worried that he may have some microvascular changes. His creatinine is a little bit higher. He's complaining about some blurry vision. So I would want to do some additional testing at this point. I would check a urinary microalbumin to creatinine ratio 
um, which is a very sensitive way to look for very early diabetic nephropathy in the kidney, even before we, we look for this um, and, and can find small amounts of protein in the urine, even while the patient still has a normal creatinine. And I, I would also recommend that the patient see an ophthalmologist and do a fundoscopic exam to make sure that the patient also hasn't developed retinopathy. And finally, I would definitely recommend doing a, a foot exam to see if the patient has any neuropathy or any ulcers. And if so, I would, I would send the patient to a podiatrist. I see. So once a patient is actually diagnosed with diabetes, you start looking for multi-organ complications of the disease. Correct. Studies have shown that really when the A1C is above seven, that's when you start to see microvascular complications. So yes, so that's, that's why I would start looking. Got it. So why don't we pivot to treatment now? So Dr. Goldman, when a patient has diabetes and you need to start thinking about treatment that's beyond just making lifestyle changes, how do you approach that with your patients? Sure. So I just referenced this A1C target of 7%. So that's that's not a normal A1C. A normal A1C is less than 5.7%. And just as a reminder, the pre-diabetes range is 5.7 to 6.4 and above 6.5% is diabetes. There was a big trial in, I think, 2008 called the ACCORD trial that looked at when you target either an A1C of 7% or if you aggressively target an A1C less than 6%, what is, what's the outcome? And the trial showed that in the more aggressive group, they actually had a higher mortality rate. And maybe that those patients are at higher risk of hypoglycemia, but that is really where we get the evidence to target an A1C less than 7%. So that's where that goal comes from. Studies have shown that really um, targeting an A1C less than 7%, patients have a lower likelihood of developing microvascular complications. So for years, we just kind of cared about getting the A1C less than 7%, and we didn't really care how we did it. Certainly with elderly patients or who are at higher risk of complications from hypoglycemia, I might be okay targeting a little bit of a higher A1C. So if a patient is unable to achieve his or her A1C goals with lifestyle changes alone, then I do recommend starting a medication. Guidelines recommend starting with metformin, which is a cheap oral medication that has a low risk of hypoglycemia and it's associated with slight weight loss. We're not entirely sure how it works, but it does appear to, to decrease gluconeogenesis as its main mechanism of action. Some patients do experience GI side effects, which can be prevented by slowly titrating or considering a long-acting formulation. There is a rare risk of lactic acidosis in patients with decreased renal function, but this is quite rare. Other options include sulfonylureas, which lead to an increase in endogenous insulin secretion. These are also effective and cheap, but they do lead to weight gain and carry a risk of hypoglycemia. So I tend to choose other second-line agents like DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, or SGLT-2 inhibitors. The way that DPP-4 and GLP-1 receptor agonists work is through the incretin effect. So incretins are hormones that are released after eating that augment the secretion of insulin released from pancreatic beta cells. This is why if somebody consumes glucose through the GI tract versus if they were to receive an IV glucose infusion, there is a more robust secretion of insulin. So DPP-4 is the enzyme that inactivates GLP-1, which is one of the major incretin hormones. Inhibiting this enzyme prolongs the half-life of GLP-1, which leads to increased insulin secretion and suppression of glucagon when glucose levels are high. So these are oral pills, and they're generally well-tolerated, but they're not super potent. 
GLP-1 receptor agonists, which act directly on the GLP-1 receptor on islet cells, are much more potent. They have similar effects as the DPP-4s, but they are associated with more robust weight loss because they slow gastric emptying, and they've also been found to have direct effects on the brain to decrease appetite and increase satiety. They've been found to have a cardiovascular benefit. So in a patient who's obese, who has type 2 diabetes, they're a really excellent choice. A lot of them are available as once-a-week injections, and an oral daily formulation was recently approved by the FDA. Finally, SGLT2 inhibitors block glucose reuptake in the kidney, causing glycosuria, which is associated with mild weight loss, a low risk of hypoglycemia, and in clinical trials, they've been found to have a cardiovascular and renal protective benefit. These are great choices for patients who have diabetes and heart failure. I do warn patients that there's a risk of dehydration and candida GU infections. These are also not something that I would use in somebody who has type 1 diabetes as there's a risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. And finally, there have been case reports of Fournier's gangrene, so something to counsel your patients on. There are multiple other classes of medications as well, but these are the most common. And certainly if a patient is on multiple agents and can't get good glycemic control, then I do think about adding insulin. Generally, we can start with one injection of a long-acting basal insulin per day to first target fasting hyperglycemia, but oftentimes we do have to add a rapid-acting insulin. Sometimes you can start with just the, the biggest meal of the day if the patient is hesitant to do multiple daily injections, and oftentimes I'll start with fixed doses, but if a patient does require rapid-acting insulin with multiple meals of the day, if the patient can learn how to count carbohydrates, that's, I find, the most elegant way to to really match the insulin to carbohydrate intake and, and achieve the best glycemic control. Dr. Goldman, thank you so much for such a helpful overview of the pharmacologic options for diabetes. It sounds like there are many, and it sounds like the decision comes down to a patient's comorbidities as well as their preferences so that we can choose the right plans. Now, patients on what kinds of medications should regularly check their glucose levels, such as with finger sticks? So most patients do not have to check their blood sugars regularly with finger sticks. I really only recommend this for patients who are on medications that can cause hypoglycemia or for those who are on insulin and they need to to titrate their dose depending on what their blood sugar is. I do make sure that all patients have a glucose meter at home so that if they're not feeling well, they can make sure that it's not due to being either hyper or hypoglycemic. For patients who really don't like checking their their finger stick multiple times a day, we do have continuous glucose monitoring available, which is very exciting. These are devices that patients can wear either on their arm or their stomachs that they only have to change every 10 to 14 days. And they often don't need to be calibrated, and patients can either swipe their smartphone over the continuous glucometer, or the the data is transmitted to a receiver or even to their cell phone to give them minute-by-minute updates on their glucose data, which is really nice technology. I see. So with new technology, it seems to make it easier than pricking themselves multiple times a day, but it's good to continue to have a sense of what your glucose levels are at, especially when you're on certain medications such as sulfonylureas or insulin. So let's pivot towards thinking about follow-up visits for these patients. So when a patient comes back, what are the most important questions that you think to ask? And are there particular physical exam maneuvers that you perform? When I see patients in the clinic, I want to know what their blood sugar control has been. So I will often ask patients to keep blood sugar logs and to bring in their glucose monitors, which we can download and, and look at the data ourselves. So I will look for trends in their blood sugar and see if I can help them to troubleshoot to to target better glycemic control. 
I also ask them questions to assess if they've developed any microvascular complications. So I ask them if they have neuropathy. I, I will do a foot exam with uh, microfilament testing to see if they have a loss of sensation. I make sure that they don't have ulcers. I ask them if they've had blurry vision, if they had a dilated eye exam from the ophthalmologist. I will ask them if they're having polyuria or polydipsia related to the osmotic effect from hyperglycemia. If patients don't have good glycemic control, I, I try and get at what are their barriers. Could it be uh, the cost of the medication? Insulin, unfortunately, is is very expensive in the United States. I see if you know what what difficulty are they having with doing the injections or with checking their blood sugar just to see if there are any interventions that I can make. Having diabetes does make people a little bit more immunocompromised, especially if they're uncontrolled. So I make sure that they are getting their immunizations. And then I do recommend getting blood work, checking a urine microalbumin to creatinine ratio once a year and a yearly creatinine to assess for nephropathy. And I check a hemoglobin A1C every three to six months. Wow, that sounds like there's a lot to keep in mind even on these follow-up visits with counseling as well as monitoring the progression of their diabetes. Emily, can you tell us a little bit more about how our patient's course progressed? Sure. So he was started on metformin and his A1C remained steady for the following year, but over the next few years his weight and his A1C did go up and his dose of oral agents increased. Despite diligently taking his meds and exercising, his fasting glucose levels ranged from 140 to 160 most days, and his A1C went up to 9.1. So unfortunately, he reached a point where there was little benefit to stimulating endogenous insulin production with medication, and he had insulin added to his medication regimen. We won't go into dosing here. At his next visit six months later, his A1C was down to 8.2, and it continued to downtrend over the next few years, reaching as low as 6.9. He enjoyed a low-carb diet and taking long walks with his family. Wow, it sounds like we were really lucky to have this patient come in when he did. I think there are many patients who don't get to see a doctor for diabetes until these long-term complications arise, so it's really nice to hear that a patient's diabetes became better managed as time went on. So, Emily, we talked a lot about type 2 diabetes in this case. Can you explain the difference between type 1 and type 2? Sure. So my understanding is that type 1 diabetes represents an autoimmune destruction of pancreatic beta cells, whereas type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. The presentation of type 1 diabetes classically occurs younger, and patients will present more acutely and generally be sicker, sometimes with their first presentation being DKA. We do have another episode coming out on diabetic emergencies in which we will go deeper into DKA, but they generally lack that asymptomatic phase that we talked about for type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes patients tend to be a little bit older and more overweight, and treatment also differs in these two cases as type 1 diabetes requires continuous exogenous insulin administration for survival, whereas type 2 can be managed first with lifestyle measures and medications before requiring insulin. Great. Thank you for that, Emily. So we've discussed such a wealth of information during this episode on outpatient management of diabetes. To summarize, Dr. Goldman, are you able to share a few pearls? So my clinical pearls are that type 2 diabetes is very common and it results from defects both in insulin resistance and then ultimately in insulin secretion. A lot of patients can feel totally fine despite high blood sugar values for a long time. So it's really, really important to counsel them about needing to make lifestyle changes to prevent micro and macrovascular complications from developing. We have a lot of novel therapies that are really quite safe and that don't seem to cause hypoglycemia and then may also improve cardiovascular outcomes. 
If patients do have to be on insulin, there have been multiple recent technological advances, for example, the continuous glucose monitors that allow them to track their blood sugars without having to stick themselves multiple times a day so they can continue to lead full and happy lives. Incredible. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Goldman, for being with us on this episode on outpatient diabetes. If you like this episode and want to continue learning with us, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating and review to let us know how we're doing. Also, be sure to check out our weekly handouts and tutorial summaries on our website and our Twitter for helpful graphics and space repetition of episode content. See you next time.